Remember the first time you saw a race car on an open trailer? Maybe it was full of dirt, tire marks, and other battle scars. You wondered where it had been, and more importantly, where it was going next. Every open trailer has a story, and we're here to tell it. Welcome to the Open Trailer Podcast. This time out, it's stage number two of Beach Ridge, the next chapter on Open Trailer Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Austin. And before we get to stage two, thank you for all the support in stage one. Many times I'll say stream, share, screenshot, tell a friend, you know, basically word of mouth stuff. And I can't tell you how crucial that is to getting the word out. Even if you're not contributing as a member of the Patreon family, simply screenshotting or telling somebody or sharing the episode, you can't put a price on that. If you share it on your socials, that's amazing. Although it's weird, Facebook is so big on sharing, yet their algorithm doesn't really promote sharing. For example, if you share something, you won't get nearly the traction you would if it's a picture of, you know, whether it's you or organic content. I don't know. The point is, uh, we're not going to solve that problem today. Uh, It does help, though. You know, if you don't feel comfortable sharing on your socials, that's fine. But I bet you there's someone who you think would love to listen to this episode who maybe doesn't know about the podcast. So just screenshot it and send it to them via messenger or through text message or whatever. Podcast suggestions, I'm all about them. I take them all the time and I'll listen to, I don't even watch TV. You know, and hey, on a human level, it, it... it's always nice to hear from somebody that you're thinking. It's that's what's another way of saying I'm thinking of you. You would enjoy this, which um, you know we need more of that in the world. Another reason why I believe it garnered the reaction it did was because it's it's something we're all going through right now, and it's I think we've all had that one. I mean, we've all broken up with people or been broken up with, but we've all had that one relationship that you were like. Lord, when it happened. Maybe you didn't see it coming or you deny that it was not going to work out when inevitably it wasn't going to work out. Anyway, it was a big bomb when it happened. But after it happens, you pick up the pieces and you move on with your life. And time goes on and you think time heals wounds. And then boom, you see that person in real life for the first time and all of those memories come flooding back. And you don't know what to do because you think you've moved on, but you really haven't. You haven't had that closure. And maybe that's a little bit of what we're going through here because – and that's why it's called the next chapter because it's time for us to move on as individuals, as a family, as a community. Otherwise, if we're comparing – like if we're comparing our new partner to our old partner, that's not fair to the new partner. New partner's coming in and putting their best foot forward. And you know what? The new partner is still in business. And the new partner cares about your business. A number of times in in stage one, and you'll hear it again in stage two, people process the information. They thought they got through it. And then, boom, springtime comes around. They smell race fuel. And they realize they're not going to the place that they've been going to their entire life. That's, That's a big shift. Yeah, it's like Tom Petty said... 
I mean, Tom Petty said a lot of things, but one lyric that sticks out in my head when putting together this podcast comes from Even the Losers, where life is such a drag when you're living in the past. Which sounds strange because this is a history-based podcast, but history history's different. This podcast looks back, celebrates, highlights, preserves history, much like Main Vintage Race Car Association, but, but we're not living in it. We're not wallowing in it. We're addressing it. We're acknowledging its importance, but ultimately we're moving on. Also, I would not be doing my job if I didn't tell you to check out MainVintageRace.org. We've been at this for over 20 years now. We've inducted over 100 individuals into the Maine Motorsports Hall of Fame, which, by the way, at MainVintageRace.org, you can check out bios for all of them. And you can contribute to the cause. I mean, if obviously, we're very specific here. If you're listening to this and you enjoy it, you like racing, and uh, you also like racing history. You can subscribe to us for less than $2 a month at MainVintageRace.org. If you've been touched by this podcast, you can contribute via Patreon at Patreon.com slash OpenTrailerPodcast. 100% of the proceeds go back into uh, making this happen. In stage number one, we talk to drivers. Well, drivers aren't the only people affected by the closure of Beach Ridge Motor Speedway. The racing family is full of characters, and one of the constants at the racetrack was Dan Walker. I realized when doing this podcast that, um, you know, it goes beyond those who were holding the steering wheel, and there are people much like yourself, Dan, who are a lifetime achiever at Beatridge, um, you know, who did spend their lifetime there and what life looks like for you moving forward. So I thank you for taking time out to uh, to speak with me about it. You know, for those that don't know the name Dan Walker, they certainly would know your voice if, if you've been in the pits the last couple of years because uh, you've served as the pit steward for the last couple of years, but some of your other history at the track. Started uh, back in 1970. My grandfather took me to my first race after he became friends with Dick Wollstonehume, and since then it just evolved. In 1980, I started working at the track. I actually uh, was a safety worker. Uh, I worked all four corners of the track. Uh, from that, it evolved into driving the fire truck. Then I had a long tenure at the three-turn wall for 12 years after Don Butterfield passed away. Um, they needed somebody to fill in for a few weeks until they found somebody, and that turned into 12 <laughs> years. And then uh, from there, I moved into the uh, pit steward job, but I also, did, I also had stints doing the publicity for about 10 years and doing the programs for 10 years. I've I pretty much done every position there except working at a concession stand to yeah. uh, get us up to where we are now. I even think you did some race announcing too, didn't you? Uh, I did uh, racing announcing a little bit. Uh, that was not my cup of tea. I leave that to the professionals like you. <laughs> um, I did the, the Friday night go-kart series for a season or two when Joe Pastore had that going. Um, filled in a little bit here and there, but uh, that was really definitely out of my comfort zone. Let's go back to when you first went to Beechridge when you were 10. Is it something that you had heard about and were excited to be at or was it a complete surprise like you didn't know this place existed i had no idea it was i had no idea it was even there um um but that that first that first time i walked in it was something that just struck a chord with me and 
um, over the course of 41 years working there and 51 years going there, I missed a total of four races. Um, it's just, just something that I fell in love with and had a passion for right from the get-go. Mm. Who were some of your favorite drivers as a child? Oh, it was definitely Dick Wollstenholme because my grandfather took me to his garage and I got to meet him, but I loved watching Homer Drew and uh, Phil and Bob Libby and as it progressed from there into Jeff Stevens and, and Bob Randall and the Mike Johnsons and the Mike Mayettas, the Brad Laytons, mm. all the way up to today's people, you know, uh, Chris Smith, Rusty Poland, Gary Smith, uh, so many people all the way up through. I just enjoyed watching them all and watching them all have success. Do you remember the first driver that you ever met? The first driver I ever met was Dick Wollstenholme. The first driver I ever became a total fanboy of was Dick McCabe. And I followed Dick McCabe a lot. And uh, some of my favorite stories involved Dick McCabe just just sitting around listening to him talk and tell stories because, as, as you know, he has that great main accent. And it's just, just I just soaked it all in. I just enjoyed hearing them talk about racing and, mm. you know, down, down at the garage after we were done, you know, Dick McCabe and Ralph Cusack and Ernie Gahan, those guys would be hanging around having a couple of drinks afterwards and the stories were just fun to listen to and even even in my early 20s and late teens, it was just something that I soaked in. Considering your, your Lifetime Achievement Award a couple of years ago, when you look back at that that lifetime that you spent at Beach Ridge, what was the one thing? And you know, you can only choose one, Dan. I know it's a hard question, but what's the one thing that you're most uh, proud of? <clears throat> that I got to race on the track head to head with my son Jeff. Um, as you as you know, I've I've had a million experiences, but that one is probably my favorite. You know that that and seeing anybody win their first race. Hmm. You, you just chose two, Dan. <laughs> I know, I know. But, oh, because man. there's a 1A and a 1B. I yeah, mean, I get definitely, you. Definitely racing with Jeff. Dude, it's a hard question. Now, now tell me about your family. Jeff being a you know, champion race car driver in his own right and watching him um, you know, race his son, Ethan, who's coming into his own as a racer now. How much Beach Ridge plays into that story and, and you guys bonding as a family over racing? Well, I was pretty much the only one in my family that went to the racetrack. Um, I would go with my uncle in later years, um, just, you know, because he, uh, he would give me a ride and whatnot, but Jeff, Jeff would always tag along. And when I was there doing, uh, doing work or, or after the races doing PR work, Jeff was always tagging along and he would help me when we had the old Bush North series, you know, organize the trailers over there and, you know, the guys got to know him, and then I think from there it just evolved. He worked one summer at the racetrack doing maintenance, and then he decided he wanted to buy his first Beetlebug race car. Uh, he bought that just to stick his toe in the water, and from there, the rest is history. He became, you know, a pretty solid Thursday Thunder competitor, and up until up until the one of the last two years, I always had a bragging rights because while he won a lot more racist than I did. He only had a half a championship because he tied with Sean McGuire, and I have a whole one. Right. But then one of the one of the last years that he won another championship. So 
Um, we, I always had that to hold over him, but he he evolved from there. Um, he, he could have done more, but then he chose to uh, get involved with Ethan, uh, my grandson, mm-hmm. and uh, get into the go-karting and um, the motocross stuff with his stepson now, um, Brody. So he's really focusing all of his effort on that now. And my daughter, Lindsay, she always hung around with me at the racetrack. She would play with her stuff while I was doing publicity and writing all that stuff. And so it just became natural for them to be around there. But I think, um, you know, through telling these stories, one thing that's common is, you know, I mean, if I had a chart of, of everybody that's been on here or referenced and how their lives intertwine on, you know, the common theme is who you wouldn't have met if you hadn't had your Beatridge experience. For example, uh, you can look at your wife, Sue. Probably would have never met her. Jeff would have never met his, uh, his, his wife, Julie. And, you know, they would not have had the experience that they had in life. So, I mean, beyond the, the driving in circles thing, it becomes really about the people you meet along the way and, and the family. Just to tra- backtrack for a second, you met your wife, Sue, at the track. That's true, and what's funny about that story is that she had been there a long time, and we just never, we never crossed paths. I was, I was up at the three-turn wall, and they they would come out. She was helping Rob Collette on this record a lot, and there would be like eye contact or whatever. But you know, it it, it never clicked, and then uh, one night just started up a conversation, and. Um, then one after one particular Thursday Thunder race, uh, her and I were in the pit area talking, and it became closing time. So her car was parked way over by the old association building. So I gave her a ride over to her car, and we wound up just sitting there talking until the sun came up. So wow. to make the make a long story short. There, that's that's how that all evolved too. But we had known each other twenty years probably before we even. Um, had spoken a word to each other. Mm. I know the place is, is close to your heart and her heart and all of ours. And, uh, you know, this, the night that the news was delivered, you were right there front and center. What was going through your mind? Uh, uh, difficult situation because I keep playing that whole day over and over because <clears throat> earlier earlier that day, um, Dick Fowler, Glenn Cusack, Mike Field, myself, and Sue had a meeting with all the uh, Thunder competitors at the Turn 5 Lounge to go over rules and stuff and some race procedures that were being discussed for next year, which would have been this season. So all of that took place. Then we went through the whole day's events. We crowned the champions, went out for the award ceremony, and I was standing beside the stage next to Dick Fowler and Glenn and... I believe, I I don't know if you introduced the current owner or not, but he was coming up on stage and he leaned in and said something to Glenn and Dick. And I thought I heard something like, I'm going to announce that I'm selling the place, but it really didn't register because, you know, that couldn't have been the case. So then when the announcement came about, uh, much like you, we had a job to do to present awards, and Sue and I were coordinating the drivers to go on stage to get their awards. 
But at the same time, my, my head is spinning 100 miles an hour trying to process what I just heard. And I went through every emotion you can think of in a short amount of time, from wanting to just throw everything up in the air and, and, and walk away to, you know, we got to finish this. These, these champions deserve this. To, feel, to feeling sorry for them because we had crowned a lot of first-time champions that night. Gary Smith, Chris Smith, not a first-time champion, but Wade Kennedy, mm. a lot of the Thunder guys. And I felt so bad for them because their night had been stomped on and, and deflated so badly that my sorrow basically took over for them. It wasn't until later that night and in the, the following week that it really kind of struck me that it just, this can't be real. And I went through the emotions of being sad, being angry, frustrated, all of that. But I knew that through the winter it would be manageable. And then into the springtime I knew this time of year it was all going to come back again. But my, my initial thoughts, I guess, to summarize were, basically disbelief and, you know, I, I hate to use the word trail, but I, I felt kind of betrayed. You know, I felt like a personal, I took it personal, and I, I don't think I should have done that. But um, that was, you know, one of the instant emotions, you know, at that very moment. And then I, I remember looking around at the crowd, and there was just this, stunned look on everybody's face and the atmosphere was just gone from celebration to shock and and um it's a it's a night that i play over and over and over again quite often and i'm i'm, I'm kind of surprised that i have that reaction but that's that's just the way it is we all knew it was going to happen the fact that it went down the way it did in front of the people that it did in their moment of glory is something that will never sit right with me. I don't think it will sit right with anybody. It wasn't the right Listen, thing to I, do. I, I told, I asked the current ownership why he picked that time, and his answer was, well, when would you like me to do it? The, that's the only time I would have had everybody together. And my, my reply to that is, I, I don't know when the right time for something like that would have been. But I know that wasn't the right time. No one argues the, the, the decision, the amount of money that the land brings, the way it was delivered. You know, it's like you can watch um, – okay, I'll put it this way. You've seen a number of movies where the hero dies, but you always remember what happened to Old Yeller. So true, yeah, and um, that that's that's a, a a very accurate way to put that because there's there's a certain amount of certain amount of self respect and and respect for people that brought you to the point that you're at that I think needs to be returned in certain situations. I don't think any of us are naive enough to think that current ownership was going to be there much beyond what would have been this season right here. There had been conversations that 
current ownership wouldn't be around to celebrate the 75th anniversary. That was no secret. A lot of us on the staff had, had been told that. But I think what was implied was that, you know, the racetrack might carry on. I know I feel foolish because I thought the racetrack would always be there, at least in my lifetime. But I think Beechridge had been built and had been brought to where it was in the sport considered at one time one of the best short tracks in the country, certainly New England. And I think the people, the competitors, the race teams, the staff that brought you to that point deserve better than the ending that they got. And I find that tremendously disappointing. Um, I find it tremendously hurtful that it ended the way it did. I mean, thank God we were able to at least get, you know, couple more events in, one more event in, you know, that following week after the announcement was made, because it would have been disgusting had it had to end that night that way. And I just think a lot of people deserved better in return mm. for what they gave to the racetrack. And that's what this is. This is a process of grieving uh, amongst a community of people. So it's not negativity. It isn't shade. It's just human emotion, and you can't change those human emotions. Uh, one thing that we we found is that every everyone's going in different directions. Some are continuing to race, and some are not. They're still struggling to find a place moving forward, and I believe that includes you. Andy, I um, have only had one home in my life when it comes to the racing game. And uh, that home is not available anymore. Um, I had four offers on the table over the course of the off season, But when I sat down and take, took a good hard look at it, and I talked with Sue about it, I, I knew that when racing season came as it is right now, that all of my emotions were going to surface again. And I didn't know how I would handle that. And I don't know how I'm going to handle it. Racing starts this weekend for me. I'm going to go to some racetracks. But I didn't feel like if I took one of the offers that were on the table that my heart would be into it. And that's not fair to the people, the promoters that made the offers to me. It's not fair to them. It's not fair to me. Um, so I decided that for this season, as of right now, we're going to be spectators. We're going to go to some races. We're going to be spectators. Um, but not every week. There's going to be some weekends where I don't have any racing on the schedule. And one of my biggest fears is that I may find that I enjoy that. Hmm. So I don't know for sure what the future holds. I know that for this year I'm not committed to anything on a weekly basis. I don't know if the final chapter's been written yet. If it has, I'm good with it. But this year I'm going to just find out exactly you know, where I'm at. And uh, if, if I want to do anything going forward, um, I guess that's something that I'm just going to learn as it unfolds going along here. But... 
I made, I made a lot of friends along the way, a lot of drivers. I'm looking forward to watching them. Looking forward to keeping up with everybody and uh, seeing everybody. But um, that's just where I'm at right now. I just, uh, my, my heart just isn't into in doing anything else right at this time. When you look back on the last 30 years of Beechridge Motor Speedway, the name Bubar often comes up. Dan Bubar, a Hall of Famer and uh, champion race car driver, his son Corey, the most recent and likely will go down in history as the final driver of the decade. Corey Bubar contended for championships year in and year out, and 2022 was going to be, well, really just another year for him. Uh, yeah, we were going to come back to Beechridge again. Um, we kind of the second half of the year we kind of hit on a few things and we were pretty consistently fast and i was just really looking forward to coming back next year to try for another championship i was never able to get one in the pro stocks and I was, that's what i was hoping to do next year right i mean you've won championships races um i forget how many races had you won at the top level it's got to be in the 20s i think at least maybe even in 30s um, no, I think I had eight in the sports series, and then, uh, I think I have 27 wins total, so I guess yeah. maybe close to 20. Yeah, no, that's good stuff, man. I mean, you driver of the decade, and, um, you know, so many different accolades, and obviously your dad with, uh, you know, his success at Beach Ridge now being in the Hall of Fame, one of the final people to actually go in the Beach Ridge Hall of Fame, which is, which is so deserving. Uh, what was your reaction when you heard the news? Um, I was just kind of shocked and um, disappointed, I guess. I mean, it's kind of, it's been basically, my whole life has been for Beach Ridge and racing, and kind of to take it away is just, there was a lot of emotions going on, I guess. Mm. And it's, uh, you know, you mentioned that you basically have spent your life up until this point at the track. How about some of the people that you've met along the way that aren't necessarily uh, your family, may have become family over the years? Yeah, I mean, I've been going, like, pretty much everyone in my life is basically through racing, pretty much. So, mm. I mean, it's, there's a lot of people that you meet from it, so... Did you meet Ashley at Beechridge? I did, yeah. I met her on a past 300 weekend. Wow. And and you guys have been together since then. Well, it's going on probably, what, like 14, 15 years? Yeah, we've been together for 12 years now. Wow. So. Um, how about some of your like your your top moments at the racetrack some races that you're like man i'm just so glad that i uh experienced that um well my the race when i won the 125 that was pretty special to me um leading up to that we had done pretty good in some of the big races but never was able to win one and we when i won that one that was kind of like a big relief but we were all pretty excited about it Hmm. Is there um, <clears throat> one particular, like, what was going on behind the wheel, what was going on in your brain when you finally crossed the line to win that 125? 
Yeah, I was just pretty happy. Like, mm. like I said, it was kind of a big relief to finally get a big win. Like, I knew we could do it, but it just never came together. And to finally do it, it was just, it was pretty happy. Yeah. So now, obviously, uh, things are what they are, and, and racers find new places to call home. Where are uh, you? Well, where is your home going to be in 2022? I don't think we're really going to have one. We're kind of just, we really don't even have a schedule set that we're going to do, but I think we're going to do a lot of the past races and a couple of Grant State races and just here and there. Do you feel a little lost not having a home track? Yeah, I do a little bit. It's kind of, there's no real, I knew I could always go back to Beach Ridge if I needed to kind of reset on my car or whatever, and I know what it needs to feel like, and there's really no, I just, that's what I feel. I feel lost, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I, I get that. It's someplace that's been your constant for pretty much your entire life, and uh, now you just have to go find, I guess, something else, and that's there's always some weird transition. But when you drive through the gates of another racetrack, um, knowing that your home track isn't there anymore, does that change uh, the feeling at all than if it was? Um, no, I don't think so. I mean, I'm still going to want to go win the race whenever I go to show up to a race, no matter where I'm at, and that's just going to be the mindset. So I'll just have to learn to adapt to it at different places. Next up, we talk with Mad Bomber champ Brandon Williams. Now, Brandon drops a truth bomb here in the first, I mean, maybe you knew, I didn't, uh, in the first minute or so about how his racing family extends beyond Beechridge. Uh, Brandon, you've come onto the scene as a driver in the last couple of years, but you've been around Beechridge for uh, for quite some time. Yeah, I have. I mean, I started going to Thursday Thunder with my grandfather back in like 2000 probably not a lot of people know my cousin is jeff taylor so i mean he's been around racing forever so my grandfather was always gone with him like back in the bush north days and oxford obviously i'm too young to get in the pits there so he used to you know bring me to the races by bringing me to thursday thunder so so i never knew that your cousin was jeff taylor that's an awesome truth bomb tell me about that relationship a little bit he's my second cousin i think Mm. he's my grandmother's sister's son so um when i was younger we always used to go up there every week you know every sunday it seemed like and either work on cars or just spend time as family obviously the older we get all our lives go in different directions since then um, my grandmother's sister has passed away Mm. so we don't go up there as much as we used to and so really as far as like me racing i think it's just one big coincidence right I mean, it wasn't like in the cards that this is what I was going to do. I mean, <laughs> it's a good relationship. I mean, every time we see each other, we talk, and it is what it is. But it's yeah. just the way life goes. You know, families do tend to go different directions the later on it, they go. It's interesting that, um, you know, he's 88 and you're 87. I, I'm, I know that's just simply a coincidence because uh, your teammate has been Mike Ramsey for a number of years, which is uh, kind of part of your extended family as well. But Brent... <laughs> Uh, yeah. Whether you want to admit that or not, I mean, it's just the truth. <laughs> no, honestly, without Brick, I wouldn't even be into racing. He put me in a go-kart just for fun back, I think, in like 2000, 
18. Right. And then in 2019, he got a mad bomber, and he was like, hey, you want to come try it? Yeah. And I was like, well, yeah, might as well. And then it's just, you know, escalated from there. I mean, got, he got rid of the mad bomber, and Steve Perry ended up buying it or some deal that they did. I don't know. Mm. I ended up with the race car, so I'm not complaining. No, so. no, man, not at all. You had one hell of a year looking back at 2021, um, and you'd been coming on for a couple of years. You know, you've had some great runs, but what was it about just the last, I don't know, last year or two that really dialed you in as a race car driver? Honestly, it is Scott Lamb and Garrett Lamb. Those two, I trust them with my life. I mean, Garrett made me a way better race car driver than I even thought about being. I mean, he would walk me through situations and in practice, we would he would like spot my practice, tell me to change my lines or just like overall my race craft improved so much because of him, which is crazy to think. I mean, he's he's what, 20? I'm 27, so I mean, there's a seven-year seven age gap there that you know, a lot of people don't want to take advice from younger kids, but when a younger kid's been around racing since he was as long as he can remember, some people ought to listen to him. Yeah. And I 100% stand behind anything that those two, I mean, they've just developed, like made my career so much better. I mean, they're like family to me. It's nuts. In the, uh, in the season that you raced here in, in 2021, you know, uh, fields had certainly diminished for a lot of divisions, so you weren't passing as many cars, except your division, Brandon. You were passing like 20 cars a week, How, and you had the cleanest car out there. How did you find a way to get around a lot of those cars and pick up, what was it, like six or seven wins? Yeah, I picked up six wins. I could have got more, but situations didn't pan out. And um, Honestly, and... I don't really want to give away any secrets, but I'm not racing Mad Bombers anymore, just so everybody knows. But mm. um, the biggest thing that Garrett always told me, he's like, you go out in first practice, run, you know, five, six laps, get the feel for it, make sure the car's not going to fall apart. But you know what you need to do? You need to go up to the hill on the second practice and see what everybody's doing. Because odds are, if they're overdriving their entry in, in practice, they're not going to change that for the race. I mean, they might, but... And then over time, you can kind of, like, watch people. You pick up their habits. You know, oh, like, say, for instance, this car is going to hit the gas, try to gas up too early, and when he gasses up, he's going to wash up the racetrack. And then you just be there to capitalize every position mm. for any chance you have. I mean, as we all know, no matter how hard you try... You're never going to win a race on lap one. I don't care. Like, <laughs> so, I mean, I remember one race this year, for instance, I started in the back. I mean, I don't know, just kind of how it was. And I look coming out, of, like, going into one, and they are five wide in the back stretch, four or five wide. I'm like, what the heck are you guys doing? Right. But, you know, I, it is what it is. I know it's a learning division, and I'm not trying to, like, bad bad talk anybody, right? No, dude, I mean, three years ago, you would have been five wide. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I would have been in that situation. I would have been hungry. Because you know what? You're going to go out and win on lap one. Yeah, no, it's not like that. You have to be there for lap 20, mm. 21. I mean, I don't, I don't know how many times I took the lead, but if you watch the races, I really wasn't probably leading until lap 19, 20, 21. Just like we always had a goal. You've got to be there for the last five laps to win the race. 
you take care of your stuff and try not to rough everybody up on the way up through. And, you know, it pays off in the long run, I think. You take these years, you figure out Beechridge, and then Beechridge closes. Uh, You're there that night to receive your first championship. What's going through your mind when you get that news delivered? See, I've pondered about this, you know, since that night. I mean, that's supposed to be the best day of your racing career for myself. You know, Brandon Johnson as well. He was winning his first championship. Brandon Lazat finally got his. I mean, Gary Smith even won his first championship. So it's like you're sitting there. Like, we're all happy. I mean, I'm speaking again probably just for myself, but I'm happy. And now he's going on 15 minutes about how we matter and, this, you know, all this stuff. And it's like you're literally just going to take a knife, stab me, stab all of us in the gut is what it felt like. And then we just have to act like everything's okay except our championship trophies and life goes on. But, I mean, at the end of the day, it's like I understand his property. You know, Mr. Cusack's done an amazing job there for all these years. But just the way it was presented to me is like an ill feeling in my gut still. Yeah, I don't think it will ever go away. I think, um, you know, it's like once... I don't think, like, for the rest of my life, if I never win a championship again... It's always going to have that shadow of, I want a championship, A, on 9-11, I mean, of all things, mm. and B, the same day the track announces it was closing, or under contract. Right. Boy, it sounds like so, you're all lawyered up there, Brandon. I, I didn't see that one coming. <laughs> yeah, well, I don't want to, like, say anything. Yeah, no, I, I mean, get I you. Don't, I don't mean to be disrespectful by any means. And that's... I mean, if it, wasn't for that situation i never would be racing right you know and that's one thing that i I really want to stress when we do these episodes and sometimes you know opinions uh and and different thoughts come out amongst the guests or even the host and and this isn't to drag Beechridge or to, to to be disparaging of the experience but these are the emotions of the people who have invested in the facility for 73 74 years and um you know you're gonna get you're not just gonna get the good stuff you're gonna get a little bit of everything uh, moving Absolutely. forward, though, uh, you say you're, you're not running Mad Bombers anymore. You're one of the people who are taking the Beach Ridge experience and um, moving it someplace else and quite possibly even in a, on a bigger stage. Yeah, I am uh, moving to Wiscasset. Um, the original plan, I mean, Matt Dow was running a street stock for Steve and Mark Hill, like a, a wildcat for him every once in a while. So our original plan was we were going wildcat racing in 2022. So then we already, like, the car was already there, right? So we had a meeting, Scott, Garrett, and Steve and I, about what our 2022 plans were in, like, January or something. Um, we were going to go to Wisconsin. We were going to run a Strictly. Well, then we have this championship. They're like a celebration of the year that Steve and Scott put on for Garrett and I. And then Steve started talking, and then all of a sudden he pulls the car cover off and he's got a modified sitting there, like a path mod sitting there. He's like, "Yeah, well, this is what we're, this is what you're gonna do this year, I guess." So, I was, so yeah, I'll be running a modified at Wisconsin. So that's a big step from a Mad Bomber, but it's all good. Brandon, thank you so much for uh, for taking your time. And again, dude, just thank you for being. You probably have been the most um, the most flexible thus far. Awesome, Andy. I appreciate what you're doing, and this is a huge deal to me. Like. I'm just a Mad Bomber JV championship, and I get to do a podcast with Andy Austin, which is amazing to me. So I appreciate that very much. Well, I'm glad you'll have bigger goals in the future. (laughs) 
1949, there have been a few who have accomplished father-son championships, one of them being Jason and now Wade Kennedy. Wade claimed a championship in the Wildcats in 2021, which put him in some some really decent company. And here we talk to Wade about what was going on for 2022. A lot of the people that we've talked to on the podcast, you know, won championships that night. Guys like Gary Smith, you know, they had waited since the 70s, really, to, to win one, which is something that you shared in common with Gary and a few other people. Um, Wade, first of all, a belated Congratulations on your championship season for 2021. Thank you. Man, what were you looking at uh, to do in 2022 if there had been a Beach Ridge? I mean, we had planned on just bringing it back to the race shop and uh, getting it dressed up, maybe fix a couple fenders or whatever. Nothing out of the ordinary. Throw, throw a new uh, spring setup at it like mm. we did every week. Uh, we had that thing on the scales once a week at least. Yeah, and I'd show up. I'd be working on the road or something, and show up. My dad would have the whole thing ripped apart, and oh, we're doing this, we're trying this, got this. Like, oh boy! So every week we'd go out with something completely new, just trying to get a little bit of speed. Yeah, I mean it was a very competitive class, and and your dad, Jason Kennedy, you know, has um, a lot of experience on the track, not only as a crew member but as a driver himself. You know, I mean, talk about your relationship with your dad and what he's meant to. Not only your success on the racetrack, but just you as a young man who's, uh, you know, working his way through life. Yeah, absolutely. My dad's the whole reason that I race. He, uh, ever since I was born, he's always been with Dan McKegg. I've called him Uncle Dan. He's not my actual uncle, but I've always called him Uncle Dan, even in the race shop. Uh, mm. But my dad used to race beetle bugs, and I remember as a kid, I was in diapers. My mom would bring me and my sister out, and we'd go watch my dad every Thursday night, and I just remember getting so excited hearing uh, ACDC Thunderstruck come on, <laughs> and he'd be rolling, he'd be rolling out on the track, and it was just, I, it's a vivid memory of just that moment. We, uh, I think we were the fourth or fifth father son to win them the same night, mm. and then uh, Laura, actually, I was double teaming my race car at the time in the Mad Bombers. Uh, Laura McKegg, she was uh, driving in the ladies, and she was a stout driver. She was winning top three every week, and. Then we'd go, she'd hop out and I'd hop in or vice versa. 2021, you get your first championship. Tell me what it's like going into that race night. Before all of this went down, what was it like pulling into the pits that night thinking that you could be a NASCAR champion? It was kind of overwhelming. It was, I was excited and nervous and all sorts of emotions were going through and we are just talking like it was, that was just the same, same normal race day. We're going to go for top five like we had every because we were 11 for 11 in the points races top five so we we're going to try to make it 12 for 12 but uh Chaz Briggs he was the two seed and he was only a couple points out so it was a all down to the last race and me and Chaz are good buddies now mm. we met actually at Beechridge and uh we're good buddies now we text here and there and uh it was cool he's a couple pads over from us so we'd always walk over and give each other crap on the race car and I'd start mine, pull it out of the trailer, and be like, oh, listen to this new cam we put in it, Chaz, when it's really just, it's really just a stock crate. Yeah, uh, who cares, man? You know, I, yeah. I, I love that gamesmanship. So, you know, you cross the start-finish line, uh, and you're, you know, you're the champion for 2021. What was that moment like to you? I was holding down the mic button on my steering wheel, and I was screaming to my dad. I mm. can't remember exactly what I was saying, but it was a really exciting moment. 
Yeah, just that experience with your father uh, while you crossed the line as a champion, have you ever talked to him about what that was like for him? No, I haven't really, I haven't really thought about that, actually. That's a good, that's a good question. Something could, I'm interested in hearing from him. He was a champion in uh, I think it was 2003 or 2002. So you watched him, and then what it must be like for him as a champion race car driver to watch his son achieve, and then the two of you share that moment like right after you win the championship. I mean, that's got to be one of the best things in life. Oh, absolutely. It was quite a moment. We were just planning on like another season, just going to get ready and come defend our title, and would have been the first time doing that so that would have been a cool situation yeah but then we get the announcement and tell me what that was like from your perspective oh man we were everybody was crowded around just how we did racing this year or whatever and then he drops the bomb on us like that and i was actually standing by myself my old man was standing at the, my race car with my mom and they were just talking and then he said that and i spun right around and looked at my dad and beeline right towards him so we could talk about it yeah uh, frustrate over i don't know i don't know the emotions to put towards it did it sink but, in by the time you had grabbed your trophy for the championship definitely not it started sinking in more over the winter when we're rebuilding the race car and i was driving uh, to work getting on the highway or something that passed beatridge and like oh man can suck never going pulling in there again yeah, wait, how old are you right now? I just turned 25. So you're 25 years old. You've been going to Beach Ridge for pretty much your entire life. You probably don't remember the first time you were there. I don't remember the first time. Right. I wish I did. To have that constant in your life, I mean, something that's been there since, I mean, essentially day one, um, you know, what's it like to not have that in your life anymore? Um... I don't know. It's kind of weird. Like, even on Sundays, we'd go there for day destruction just to see burnouts and see people demolition derby. It was just awesome to always have that close to the house and not, I don't know, everybody that we knew went there. It was just always like family every time we went there. One thing I picked up from listening to you is the bond that you and your father had. And, and I knew that from talking to you guys in the pits and knowing you both a little bit. But, you know, the fact that you keep on coming to that tells me that it goes deeper than just racing. What will you guys do to replace Beatridge in your life? I mean, there's no replacing Beatridge at all, but uh, we're going to try to make up for it a little bit. We're going to go try with Cassett. We raced uh, the shootout a couple times. We did all right. Uh, we ended up fifth last year after dodging some pretty crazy wrecks. Mm. Uh but we're going to go up to Wiscasset. We went up and practiced uh, one weekend, and the uh, car went good. Not terrible, but definitely wasn't Beatridge. Not like pulling into Beatridge for the first time. And right. We know every, everybody at Beatridge waving and beeping at people. It's kind of like, I'm going to keep my head down here. I don't really know anybody. And, and you'll find that at Wiscasset, too. It's, uh, you know, it's a wonderful place full of, full of amazing people. Uh, and you'll, get, you'll see a lot of friendly faces there because I think a lot of people – from Beatridge have headed over to Wiscasset, and you, it's a soft landing, definitely. Um, the Jordans are excellent people. Ken Minot's a wonderful promoter. Um, but it isn't your home, you know? That's the thing. I think that's the, the one hump that people are going to have to get over. Um, you know, aside from the racing, some of the people that you met 
at Beach Ridge that you probably wouldn't have met in your life have become big friends. I mean, like Chaz Briggs, for example. Talk about some of the other people in your life that you have met that you wouldn't have met if it wasn't for the track. Probably, uh, I don't know. There's a ton of them, just about everybody. But uh biggest one is probably the McKeggs and Naughty 40. That's, uh, I was kind of born into it, but that's how my dad got really into being best friends with Dan is Beach Ridge. Mm. Go down to Beach Ridge when they were kids. And then Dan, Dan's always raced there. He's always been an awesome driver. And now little Dan gets to take over his legacy, which is going to be awesome to see. Yeah, I love that. Hey, what is the one thing that sticks out in your head, one race or one memory, when I say, this is my Beach Ridge moment? What is Wade Kennedy's Beach Ridge moment? Ooh. Um, it'll probably have to be championship night when it came down to that last race between me and Chaz, and he was only a couple cars back. He was beating me at the beginning of the race. I got spun out and put in the dirt pile and then came back and drove back by him. That was pretty uh, pretty awesome because we could have lost the championship right there. So tell me about that moment when you came in to the track. You know, you felt, hey, we have a chance at the championship. You know, the feature race starts, and then you end up in the dirt. What goes through your mind when that happens? Well, that was my first time ever hitting a dirt pile, so I was like, it was dust everywhere, and I was like, oh, boy, the car had stalled, so I was like, all right, and fire it up, and it was like, it was like, like, slowly turned over, and then it fired up, so I came on the radio, and I was like, it's still running, what do you want me to do? He's like, keep going, drive by me slow. I cruised by him slow, and he's like, nothing's rubbing, and then we kept on tracking down. Did you feel that you had lost the championship when you were in that dirt pile? Oh, absolutely. Wow. You know, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a crazy experience. You'll probably have nothing ever like it in your life again. But Beach Ridge has, uh, has always been home to you. Absolutely. Always will be. You know, originally, this was supposed to be uh, something that lasted one, maybe two episodes. However, next time out, we're going in for episode three because we can't deny stories like this one. What was the drive home like that night? Uh, it was just me and my now wife, and it was uh, it was very quiet, actually. I mean, we we had a whole you know plan for afterwards. We were going to go back, um, have a little bonfire and some beverages and hang out with everybody and celebrate. And we just went home and went to bed. I, I had no ambition to do anything fun at that point. That's next time out on Open Trailer Podcast. Thank you for the support.